Welcome to Attorney General Insights. I'm Matt Den, a partner with the DLA Piper Law Firm and the former Attorney General of the state of Delaware. And we are very pleased to have with us as our guest today, Attorney General Fox of the state of Montana. Uh, Attorney General Fox is the president of the National Association of Attorneys General. He's been selected by his peers to be basically first among equals among the state's attorneys general. And uh, General Fox, if it's okay with you, I was going to give folks the the 60-second biography. Oh, sure. That'd be great. Thanks, Matt, for for having me on and looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Likewise. Uh, General Fox is um, Montana through and through. Uh, He was born there, raised there, uh, graduated from the public schools there for high school, college, law school. Um, And then he did just about everything uh, he could do before running for public office. He was in private practice in a law firm, uh, in-house counsel for a company. He worked as an attorney for the government. Uh, General, if my math is right, you were in your, your 50s before you even ran for office the first time. Is that right? Yes, I was. Uh, the first time I ran for office was in 2008. I can't even recall how old I was, but I was quite old. <laughs> hey, I'm in my <laughs> 50s now. That's that's not old. Uh, okay, good. He was, uh, he was elected uh, Montana Attorney General in 2012, and he's now finishing his second term as the state's AG. Um, and as I mentioned, aside from fulfilling his duties to the people of his state, he's also the leader of the nation's Attorneys General, and we're going to talk a little bit about an initiative involving civility that he has undertaken uh, in that role. But uh, General, welcome, and uh, thank you for for joining us today. Thanks again, Matt, and I look forward to the conversation. Um, So uh, as I mentioned, I I definitely want to talk about some issues uh, involving your um, civility initiative. Um, But I was hoping first just to talk a little bit about uh, you. Um, You uh, were very public about the fact a couple of years ago that you had been diagnosed with, uh, with cancer from which happily you made a full recovery. Um, and it's something that I know you've talked about, uh, since that happened as well. So I, I was interested just on a personal level, um, why you had decided to be, uh, as public as you were about your diagnosis and, and, and treatment. Well, you know, I can tell you that when you have, uh, an illness like cancer and my, my particular cancer was colon cancer, uh, it is a private thing. Uh, when when you're in politics, you don't want to show any vulnerabilities, even with your health. Uh, but it didn't take too long for me to understand the importance of health screenings, which is what saved my life uh, in the form of a colonoscopy. And I thought, you know, what a great platform I have to encourage others to get their health screenings, regardless of what it might be. And uh, none of us are going to live forever, but we can certainly live a lot longer if we take care of ourselves, exercise, eat right, and get those screenings. And uh, so I'm very fortunate to have uh, a doctor who suggested uh, that I get another screening, and uh, it saved my life, as I said. And so... I can tell you that I know of at least four individuals who credit my coming out publicly with my cancer. Uh, it, it encouraged them to get colonoscopies and save their lives. Uh, uh, one of them wow. happened to be a, a brother who, he, although he didn't have cancer, he had some other uh, problems that his doctor uh, called a ticking time bomb, if you will, which my brother was able to get fixed. Uh, and one of uh, our wonderful law enforcement professionals here in the state 
uh, actually had cancer, and he heard me uh, twice speak uh, at uh, conferences about the importance of getting screenings, and he finally relented. He was in his 50s and got a, a, a colonoscopy, and lo and behold, they discovered cancer, and he wasn't even feeling ill. So, uh, you know, to the listeners listening to this podcast, uh, meet with your doctor. If you've got a history of, of any kind of uh, illness in your family, whether it be heart disease or uh, cancer or something else, uh, you know, be sure to get in as early as possible. Uh, uh, one of my f- uh, former fellow attorneys general was one of the first people to reach out to me when he heard I had cancer to tell me that he was diagnosed with colon cancer in his early 40s. So it can happen to anybody, and it's something that's treatable and fixable. And uh, I'm just feeling very blessed that, that uh, you know, I was able to catch it. And I hope others uh, will take me up on my advice. So uh, it's got to be very rewarding to, to have sort of, you know, individual stories from people that uh, what you said, uh, you know, made a, a difference for them. Um, just be, beyond that. Just in terms of how you lived your life as an elected official, um, did that experience change your outlook or your perspective at all, having that kind of uh, near-miss experience? Sure. You know, um, I think most survivors of of serious illnesses will tell you that it's an opportunity to take stock in your priorities in life and, and have a better understanding of what's most important. And I you know, I thought I had things pretty well organized in my life, but you can always do a little bit better. And so, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I exited through that health crisis with a renewed vigor and making sure that I live every day to its fullest, that I build my relationships and, and foster my relationships, particularly with my family, um, and that I stay focused, but also take care of myself and relax and enjoy life. And so all of those things. And interestingly, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, my presidential initiative. Uh, just prior to learning that I had cancer, I had re-enrolled in college to finish a master's degree in public administration. And I knew that I was in the cycle potentially to be voted as president of the National Association of Attorneys General, and I would have to have a presidential initiative topic. So I chose to do uh, my uh, thesis for my master's degree uh, on this very subject that we'll be talking about. And But in the middle of that, I learned that I had cancer and I actually talked to my advisor at the University of Montana and tried to, to uh, get out of uh, going back to school and even inquired about whether I could get my tuition back. And, and she said, you know, uh, your university and me will really stick with you and work with you, and let's see if we can't get this done. And so, you know, during surgery and chemotherapy, um, I finished my coursework and, and did the research and writing for my thesis and, and including a curriculum for my presidential initiative. And here we are today talking about it. Just sort of decided you get a master's degree while you were recuperating? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was uh, something that I had started before I went to law school. It was a joint degree program. And when I got into law school, I I uh, lost sight of getting everything done. And so that was 30 some odd years ago. And it was a loose end that I just needed to tie up and, and uh, 
You know, I had plenty of excuses, new jobs, getting married, having kids, moving. And, uh, you know, cancer is a pretty good excuse. But, you know, if I can do it, others can do it. You know, whatever it is you've left undone in your life, now's a good time to finish it and get it done. Well said. Um, let me ask you one other sort of perspective question before I, I ask you about your initiative. And it's kind of a corollary to the ones I've been asking you. We mentioned at the outset that um, you didn't spend your whole life in politics. You you had a whole, you know, 20, 30 year career before you ran. And, and in the meantime, had a family. You have now kids, kids, grandkids. Um, you, in, in this role in particular, as, as president of the state's AGs, you interact with elected officials from around the country, you interact obviously with elected officials in your own state, um, some of whom followed your route and uh, you know didn't run until uh, you know somewhat later in life, and some of whom were running for stuff since they were in their twenties. Um, do you see any differences, you know, either for better or for worse, in terms of how folks who got started earlier versus got started later in elected politics, how they navigate the the world of, of politics? Well, let me uh, first begin to answer that question by saying I have no regrets uh, in, you know, how the good Lord has blessed me in my life. And I've had many great experiences and uh, particularly in my work and professional life. Uh, I will say this, however, I am I'm term limited as attorney general here in Montana. This is the best job I've ever had. Uh, in public service, I have always known because I, although not a, an elected official at the time, I have been in government jobs, is a very rewarding occupation and endeavor. And, uh, you know, to all the public servants out there who work so hard for the common good, um, I would say thank you. And had I known perhaps uh, just how good this job could be, I may have entered uh you know, elected office or tried to achieve elected office sooner. Uh, but I still got many good years ahead of me. And I don't know that I'll ever run for anything again, but I will continue to find ways to serve. Before I became attorney general, I was heavily involved in nonprofits and um, primarily nonprofits that serve other disadvantaged uh, individuals. And uh, I, I'll probably go back to some of that. Um, you know, I've coached track and field on a volunteer basis at a local college. I, I love that. So you don't have to be an elected official to serve others, uh, I think, is the, the first lesson in life. But uh, certainly elected office provides many good opportunities uh, to serve the common good. And I'm very thankful that I had this opportunity to do that as attorney general. Well, that's a good segue into uh, into your initiative uh, at the national level. Um, you've taken on a pretty ambitious task as the president of the the nation's AGs, which is to literally try to change the tenor of politics among uh, the AGs. And and you know many of your predecessors have taken on you know particular subjects, particular issues, but you've instead uh, launched an initiative that you call transformational leadership and civility. Um, so I, I definitely want to ask you about the, the details of it. But first, can you tell me how you settled on that as your priority rather than focusing on a particular issue or a problem? Why does it why does it matter that much that the nation's AGs uh, get along better? Well, you know, I, I've learned as being attorney general and, and having uh, the relationships with my colleagues, uh, some who have come and gone, others who are still in office, 
that the National Association Attorneys General historically has done a lot of great work uh, since uh, early last century uh, with the uh, antitrust activities of the state attorneys general uh, on uh, Standard Oil of Ohio. And more recently, the um, master settlement agreement with tobacco companies, which is uh, funded smoking cessation uh, programs throughout the, the nation. And here in Montana, the Children's Health Insurance Program is funded with money from the master settlement agreement paid by uh, tobacco companies. And then just here recently with the COVID-19 pandemic to see attorneys general come together and work on things like uh, multi-state letters to Congress on suggested legislation, uh, going after price gougers and putting out uh, good information through their not only their individual offices, but through the National Association of Attorneys General uh, to protect our citizens, whether it be consumer protection or what have you. So there is a huge body of great work that the nation's attorneys general have come together time and time again to achieve. And, um, you know, for instance, when I became attorney general, uh, Rob McKenna, the former attorney general of Washington, was just leaving office. And his presidential initiative was um, about stopping human trafficking, which was not something on my radar and something I had a hard time thinking would even occur in a place like Montana. But as it turns out, uh, there is a lot of sex trafficking in particular that goes on in our world, obviously, and Montana's not immune. So I began to focus on that because of Rob McKenna and his presidential initiative. And I learned that we weren't doing much. And since then, without getting into the particulars, uh, we've created legislation and task forces and and uh, public outreach, and uh, we've really ramped up our efforts to stop human trafficking in Montana. And that's just one example of how you can, you know, learn from our colleagues and do great things in your own state. But uh, that said, uh, during my now eighth year as Attorney General, throughout my two terms, uh, I've also seen a, a rise in political rhetoric, uh, at the national level and the state level, uh, divisive politics uh, for various reasons. Um, and uh, it concerned me that because I felt like it, it risked the uh, state, attorney, state and territorial attorneys general and the District of Columbia attorneys general not uh, working well in a bipartisan way. And I think we've seen a little of that. And uh, so I figured my legacy should be uh, focusing on uh, initially what my thesis called civility and statesmanship in the offices of the state, territorial, and District of Columbia attorneys general. And we've now uh, entitled that, as you mentioned, transformational leadership and civility, uh, because that's something I think we need to constantly be reminded of. And what I try, am trying to do is provide a roadmap so that as new attorneys general come in, uh, even those of us who've been around a long time, like Tom Miller, who's the longest serving attorney general in the history of our nation from Iowa, um, we're, you know, hopefully continually uh, trying to uh, build relationships, understand where each other is coming from, show respect for opposing views, and then find ways that we can work together uh, for the betterment, not only of our state or territory or District of Columbia, but our nation as a whole. 
So that's the goal. And, uh, you know, my colleagues have embraced this concept. We actually started the programming uh, about a year and a half ago um, when I first uh, uh, finished the thesis and, and suggested that this might be something we want to focus on. Uh, the National Association has now created a center for transformational leadership and civility within uh, the association. So the work will continue after I uh, leave office uh, at the beginning of next year. What do you um, you mentioned that you had seen things change just uh, during your two terms in office? What do you what do you think changed, and and when do you think it changed? Was there a sort of a clear turning point when the collegiality started to unwind because I got elected after you did, I got elected attorney general and uh, I took office January, 2015. And it seemed like the fight was in full swing. Uh, by the time I took office, I spent two years being on the opposite side of Republican AG lawsuits against the Obama administration. And then two years after that, suing Donald Trump with my fellow democratic AGs. Uh, is there, is there a point where you think things turned and, and why do you think that was? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of things. One thing you keep in mind is that uh, historically, the position of attorney general has been a launching point for political careers for many uh, prominent individuals throughout the years. And most recently, Senator Josh Hawley, who was an attorney general, uh, and probably the most uh, famous is Bill Clinton, who was the attorney general of Arkansas before he became governor and then ultimately president of the United States. And so um, there's a lot of attention uh, given to attorneys general because of the potential that those individuals may eventually be a United States senator, maybe a congressman, a governor in their own state. Uh, Mark Roscoe, who was the attorney general of Montana, became governor of Montana. Steve Bullock, who is our current governor, uh, was a, the attorney general of Montana before he uh, became governor. So there's quite a bit of status there in terms of building relationships uh, with individuals like attorneys general. Uh, I think another important milestone that actually happened years before I became attorney general was the creation of the political uh, attorney general arms, the uh, Republican Attorney General Association and the Democrat Attorney General Association, uh, who really their primary focus is uh, raising money and uh, trying to get uh, attorneys general of their party elected. And um, so that, I think, uh, has you know underscored uh, the the political side of what it is that we do. And then, as you mentioned, uh, through President Obama's administration and now uh, President Trump's administration, the issue of federalism has really risen. Uh, not that it didn't exist before, but it, it's really become prominent. And you see a lot of uh, individuals and companies who are following the careers of attorneys general and wanting to build those relationships uh, because of the, the, you know, frankly, the power and responsibilities that they have. Uh, and, you know, covering all of that or is the rise of social media and instant news and how politics have, have changed, if you will, uh, uh, in some respects because of, um, you know, the internet and, um, you know, cell phones and videos and you name it. Um, so we have to, I think, constantly remind ourselves of the good work that attorneys general have done when they 
work together. And, um, and so things have changed. And the other thing about it, I think is important, and I'll give an example, uh, back in 2018, I believe it was, there were a lot of attorney general offices up for election and we got a huge new crop of brand new attorneys general. And many of them were in knockdown, drag out political fights uh, with the candidate of the other party. And there were millions of dollars spent nationwide in those races. And their attack ads were you know, prevalent. And some of the new attorneys general, newly elected attorneys general, came out of those experiences feeling battered and beat up and, and very suspicious of uh, their new colleagues of the opposing party. And um, one of the things that the National Association does, as you know, is an orientation program for new attorneys general uh, right after the November elections of any particular year. And um, a number of those new attorneys general uh, were very receptive to what we were talking about uh, in terms of civility and statesmanship. And we put that into the program to talk about, you know, how we can and should work together and build relationships. And several of them came up to me and said, boy, I needed to hear that because I came to this meeting uh, not really caring about working with my colleagues of the other party because I felt like they'd been unfair to me. So, um, you know, I think that's important as well, that we continue with new AGs, since we're not always going to be AG, to remind folks about the good work that we can do together and how we go about doing it. And first and foremost of that is building relationships and building respect and understanding where someone's coming from. Let me ask you about one example of where you uh – practice what you preach, basically. That was with respect to the Affordable Care Act. Um, last year, you and the Attorney General of Ohio, who's also a Republican, uh, broke ranks with the, the nation's other Republican attorneys general and, and filed a brief asking the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, not to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act just because um, one provision of it, the individual mandate, had been found unconstitutional. Um, can you tell me about the the process leading up to that decision? You know, did you did you tell your colleagues you were going to be going a different way? Um, you know, what was the reaction to you? Uh, you know, not not sort of assuming the, the partisan line on that one. Sure. So uh, that lawsuit, as you know, by the way, is up uh, to the United States Supreme Court right now. It originated in a U.S. District Court in Texas, and I. I want to say that was uh, filed initially by a number of Republican attorneys general. I think it was initially uh, 17 Republican attorneys general and then a couple of governors uh, in states that had Democrat attorneys general. And we took a look at that uh, early on and determined that the, the U.S. Department of Justice, who would be defending that lawsuit because it was a federal law at issue, uh, was going to be taking the position that um, – that the entire Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as it's often called, should not be totally stricken because of the unconstitutional individual mandate, which um, the argument was that it was rendered unconstitutional by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of, of uh, 2017, which essentially made the penalty for not having health insurance zero. So we looked at it. We knew that the Trump administration would be defending it through the U.S. Department of Justice, and that was good enough for us. And, and we felt that 
there's a severability argument that the original complaint uh, really missed and that you, that uh, it was Congress's job to uh, to amend or repeal the, uh, the ACA. And I and believe you me, I feel like there are a lot of problems with the ACA and that it actually should be, if not totally repealed, it needs to be amended. But um, that I don't think we should, uh, to use an old phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, that's not a legal phrase, but severability is. And um, so the U.S. District Court in Texas uh, ultimately uh, sided with the plaintiffs, as you know, and and uh, they uh, uh, essentially threw out the entire ACA because of the unconstitutionality of the uh, individual mandate provision. And that's when I joined with uh, General Yost of Ohio uh, in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to file an amicus brief that essentially um, – was now arguing what the U.S. Department of Justice had originally argued but chose to abandon on appeal to the Fifth Circuit because we felt that that argument needed to be continue to be made. And the Fifth Circuit actually, uh, without citing to our brief, uh, took us up on that and declared the individual mandate unconstitutional but severable from the rest of the act. So you have to understand, too, that there's a lot at stake, obviously, in this, not just the politics, but for instance, uh, if you threw the, old, the whole ACA out, if a court did that, which is pretty unprecedented to throw out a huge set of statutes based on one provision being unconstitutional, uh, that would affect about 150,000 or more Montanans who rely on coverage for pre-existing medical conditions. So there are consequences to a court acting in that way, uh, in addition to the fact that the Constitution really doesn't provide for throwing out an entire set of statutes based on one unconstitutional provision. So that case now is up uh, to the United States Supreme Court um, the uh, a number of Democrat AGs uh, intervened in that case early on and and are um, uh, appealing. Um, and uh, General Yost and I have filed another amicus brief, essentially mirroring the arguments we've made before, because no one else is making those arguments. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that because there are a ton of amicus briefs that have been filed, many of which by uh, conservatives and Republicans, saying that it's Congress's job to repeal or replace uh, Obamacare and not a, a federal court's job to do that. So um, it's a, you know, some folks might uh, disagree with me there, uh, but when you define statesmanship, and many have done it, this is nothing new, uh, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Terry Newell has written a book about statesmanship, character, and leadership in America and uh, he defines statesmanship uh, as something that uh, the, the, a leader must know the context in which they're, they're acting, and they must exhibit moralistic and virtuous character. They have to define a transcendent purpose. They have to master the art of politics and exhibit compelling persuasion. And they have to invite, encourage, and persuade the people to rise to the leader's division, uh, vision to shape the nation's character. And in addition to that, he notes in his book that uh, oftentimes that means that you have to do these things amid opposition and at personal risk, politically and otherwise. 
and so, you know, I can't tell you that I was looking for opportunities to take a position different from my Republican attorney general colleagues, uh, but at least one panel of uh, federal appeals court uh, judges have agreed with uh, me and General Yost, and I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, the United States Supreme Court will agree with us as well. Let me ask you, we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you, uh, just sort of jumping onto something completely different about um, one last topic, which is um, money in political campaigns. And uh, I remember talking to you over a year ago uh, at a National AGs Association meeting in uh, Washington, D.C., and, and talking to you about your campaign for Montana governor. And I remember you telling me then that your biggest concern about the campaign was that you might be running against a self-funding uh, multimillionaire primary opponent and just get uh, overwhelmed financially. And uh, that's kind of what happened. And I can't remember the margin by which you were outspent, but it uh, it was two to one, three to one, some huge margin. Uh, I think it was actually six to one. Six to one, okay. <laughs> even, yeah. even more so. Uh, right. You know, I've, I've been outspent in campaigns before, but never even by a fraction of that order of magnitude. I mean, what is it what is it like trying to run a political race when you just can't get your message out? Well, it, it is frustrating, and it, I'm not the only person that has run against a self-funder. Uh, in my case, uh, uh, the uh, millionaire candidate was also a congressman or is also a congressman. Uh, and he put in, you know, between a million and a million and a half, I think, of his own money in, in, into his race, which uh, that in of itself was um, about uh, three times, or well, two times anyway, uh, what I raised and spent in the primary. And that doesn't include the, the additional uh, campaign contributions he received. But in any event, um, you know, I, I think <laughs> – Many, many who've been beat would attribute their, uh, their defeat to various things, and money often plays, whether it's uh, disparity in, in uh, personal wealth or a disparity in ability to uh, just raise money. Um, but, you know, it is the system that we have, uh, and uh, my, my biggest concern is that there be transparency, that people understand where the money's coming from. Uh, Montana historically has shunned uh, uh, self-funders in general elections, uh, but I knew that in a primary election that was going to be, you know, very difficult. So uh, all that said, I have no regrets. Um, you know, my uh, lieutenant governor candidate and I uh, put together a very substantive set of, of uh, white papers, strategies about, you know, uh, the things that we might be able to do. We brought a lot of folks together to help with that. And that's still there. And, and people can use that. They can consider it. Uh, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, there'll be some life, if not for my candidacy, at least for uh, the work that we invested on uh, policy issues. Um, you know, I an interesting little story again about uh, political uh, – um, capital and how you might spend it shortly after I became attorney general, there were a number of conservative groups that filed suit to invalidate Montana's uh, limits on campaign contributions. And in, just as an example, in my attorney general races, I was able to raise $330 per person, no corporate donations. 
as a governor candidate, the limit was $710, no corporate donations. So in a state as big as Montana with a million people, it's difficult to get your message out with those limits. And I do think they ought to be a little bit higher. Uh, But my job as attorney general was to defend the state statutes, which limited contributions. And I did so uh, successfully. And that was in federal court. And that case also went to uh, the United States Supreme Court on a, a petition for certiorari uh, from the plaintiffs, uh, and uh, we successfully defended that, and the court did not grant certiorari. So our limits are still low, and uh, in retrospect, that probably hurt me in in my governor uh, candidacy because if I'd uh, rolled over and done something unethical like not defended state law. Uh, we might have had unlimited uh, donations, and maybe I could have raised enough money from some donors to c- compete better. Has anything? Uh, I mean, has the experience changed in any larger sense, sort of your view of you know what what rules there ought to be or ought not to be in terms of uh, campaign finance, or do you, you think that the the way it works now is still you know in generally the way it ought to work? You know. Um, I've actually given some serious consideration to penning a bill for the next legislature here in Montana to consider uh, whereby, uh, and again, this is just, uh, you know, it's sketchy at this point, where a candidate uh, for office, when they file their paperwork in, in order to begin to raise and spend money, which is required in Montana, uh, would have to declare whether or not they intend to spend their own personal finances in their candidacy, in their campaign, and also specify the limit on which they intend to spend. And they'd have to be held to that ultimately. Uh, And that that would trigger then for any opponents in the race, uh, the ability to have uh, a further uh, donation limits and be able to raise enough money to compete uh, if you if you're following me there, it basically would be a trigger, uh, so that uh, those that are not able to self fund would not be at the mercy of someone who who is able. Uh, I'm not sure, having not thought thought that through completely, how that would work, but uh, perhaps that's one answer to uh, making a level playing field. Because ultimately, in politics as in sports, um, I don't think anybody should have. Um, you know, undue ability to to win, whether it be a game or a match or a campaign, merely because of something like um, money or uh, referees who are in the pocket of one team or another or whatever uh, the advantage might be that's unfair. Um, that then in politics would leave us to a campaign on the issues. Uh, not about money, not about name ID, but about who's best qualified uh, and able to lead. And, and, a, and it's a campaign of ideas uh, and qualifications as opposed to who's the richest person in the race. Well, General, I, um, I appreciate the time that you spent with us. I promised your staff that uh, we would keep you on schedule, and I want to keep that promise. Um, but we are um, – very much looking forward to uh, to seeing the rest of your national initiative uh, uh, take place, and I think uh, everyone everyone agrees that it, uh, 
an additional measure of civility these days um, would be welcome. Uh, so um, I appreciate your time. Well, Matt, thank you for this opportunity. And um, I would encourage anyone who listens to reach out to our office uh, at the Montana Department of Justice in the next uh, several months before I'm uh, done. And if they have any questions about uh, how we can all work together, not just attorneys general, but uh, citizens in general and other leaders, um, you know, I'd love to have that dialogue with others and, and uh, let's continue to spread the message that, you know, uh, divisive rhetoric uh, and, uh, uh, attacks on the uh, character of, of one another is not the way to lead and that if we uh, build relationships and, and, and understand the positions of others and respect those positions but yet find commonality and bipartisanship, uh, we can do so much more and it's sorely needed in our country right now. And I'm hoping that we can have a, uh, a new renaissance, if you will, in civility and statesmanship in our country. Well said, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt.